0: following resource is from welford baptist church well good morning church we're gonna be in matthew chapter 6 as we continue the sermon on the mount the lord's prayer pray this in your heart with me our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven One of the most brilliant and beautiful films of the 21st century thus far has to be Terrence Malick's 2019 project, A Hidden Life. Indeed, it could be one of the most thoroughly Christian films ever made. And if you want to see a visually stunning narrative depicting what the Beatitudes look like, this very well might be it. Based on a true story, it follows a solitary farmer named Franz Jagerstatter, who in his small rural Austrian village has a simple but happy life. With his wife, his kids, his church, his faith. It's almost like Eden. But this is the 1940s, so Eden can't last. Adolf Hitler and his Nazi regime are advancing their evil empire all around. And they've come to call on the men of this village to fight for the German army and swear allegiance to Hitler. But as a follower of Jesus, the farmer knows he cannot do such a thing. And everyone in the village slowly begins to turn against him and his family as a result, questioning his love for his country, his love for his village, his love even for his family. Even his local priest wrongly encourages him to go ahead and at least verbally pledge allegiance to Hitler because he says God is only concerned with what he believes in his heart. But Jagerstatter refuses to do this, and so he's eventually taken to prison and increasingly pressured there to yield to the Third Reich and to take the Hitler oath. But knowing that doing so would violate everything he believes in as a Christian, he steadfastly perseveres through the taunts, through the beatings, through the torture. Meanwhile, his wife and his family receive various abuses from the villagers at home. His own mother can't understand why he won't just fight for the fatherland. Even people who sympathize with Jagerstatter are baffled by his resolve one of his judges asks him this, do you imagine that anything you do will change the course of this war? That anyone outside of this court will ever even hear of you? No one will be changed. The world will go on as before. And indeed, Yagerstader is but one man. He knows his life seems insignificant in the face of the behemoth that is the Third Reich. But he also knows that while his life is hidden in this sense, God still sees. God still knows. And so he simply replies, I can't do what I believe is wrong. With these words, he seals his fate. He's taken to the guillotine where he is put to death. But upon his death, the church bells in his village toll. And the villagers stop in the field and in the square. See, it turns out God isn't the only one who has seen and known. In the grand scheme of things, perhaps his life meant very little, but his little corner of the world there, man, his pursuit of the good left a lasting impact. In the closing scenes of the film, his wife is heard saying, the time will come when we will know what all this is for. And there will be no mysteries. We will know why we live. We'll come together. We'll plant orchards, fields. We'll build the land back up. I'll meet you there in the mountains. You know, when we talk of a kingdom, we often think of castles and warriors and triumph and pomp and circumstance, power and prestige. But when Jesus described his kingdom, he described it in this way. He says, it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Indeed, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Church, we know the triumph and the glory of the kingdom that will one day be fully realized. It's a day we long for, when the king of kings will set all things right. But listen, the kingdom in this present age is most evident in these hidden, obscure lives. These insignificant mustard seeds, these little bits of leaven, small acts of defiance in a world of darkness hearkening to the glory of what is to come. People, everyday people, with the heart of God, living to do the will of God, and seemingly when it's against all odds. It is in this that the glory of the gospel of the kingdom is seen. And it is in light of this that Jesus calls us to pray the most radical of prayers. In rebellion against the temporary ruler of this world, Satan, Jesus calls us to pray to all our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This was Jesus' major emphasis throughout his life, throughout his message. Indeed, the Gospel of Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry in this way. It says, "And when He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming what? The gospel of the kingdom. Jesus, like John the Baptist before him, went around declaring this. Repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So to this end, we pray, your kingdom come. But just like last week's request, this week's request seems kind of odd. Why would we pray for God's kingdom to come? For him to rule and to reign? Isn't he supposed to be omnipotent and all-powerful? Isn't he already in charge? Then why would we pray for something that already is? Well, just as we saw last week when we asked God to make his name holy, we're not asking him to turn his name into something holy because it already is holy. We're just asking him to make his holiness known and recognized. So, too, when we ask for his kingdom to come, we're not suggesting that God is not currently in control because we know from Scripture that absolutely nothing on earth happens unless God decrees it or he allows it. Instead, Jesus is calling for everything here to be in right relationship with God. That is to recognize and yield to the rule and reign of God. This request works hand in hand with the previous one. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we're saying, in my life, God, be seen as holy, Make me holy as you are holy. God, through my life, let your name be recognized as holy throughout the earth from many nations. Make us one holy nation belonging to our God. Church, do you see how that is a kingdom prayer? It is asking for God's rule and reign to be recognized on earth as it is in heaven. Jonathan Pennington put it this way, he says the idea is not as if God is not the king over the earth, but the reality in this broken and rebellious age is that while God is sovereign, his perfect, peaceful righteousness has not yet consumed all all his creation. In other words, the reason we pray for the kingdom of God to come to earth is because while God is king of the universe, there is another kingdom at work in the world today, what Colossians 1.13 calls the domain of darkness, and that is the domain in which we currently live. But it wasn't always this way. In fact, there was a time when life on earth looked exactly like the kingdom of heaven. And by God's design, as his image bearers, we were all once vested with his authority to rule as his representatives on earth. Genesis 1.26 says that he gave us dominion. What? What is dominion? Dominion is to rule and to reign. Do you see then what God was doing in the very beginning? He wasn't just creating a world. He was establishing his kingdom on earth earth he was inviting us to serve as his sub-rulers over all creation and we were able to do that because as his perfect image bearers our hearts were fully aligned with his there was no conflict between his will and our will everything was in shalom everything was in perfect relationship with god and with one another everything was under the rightful rule and reign of god and church that is flourishing Everything acting according to its design. But unfortunately, rather than reflecting his glory, we tried to run off with it. In cahoots with a sinister serpent, we question the authoritative word of God, asking, did God really say? And then we question his very heart and integrity, thinking that somehow he was holding out on us. And in an act of sedition, we ignored the one command that he gave us, choosing the fruit of the tree over the God who made that tree. And we've been paying for it ever since. Because in our demand for freedom to do as we please, God said as you wish and handed us over to our desire but rather than finding freedom we soon discovered we were now in bondage Man, cut off from the source of good and life and light in the universe we experienced brokenness and the promised wage of our rebellion death shalom had been shattered Cut off from the king and his kingdom, we were exiled not only from the fountainhead of life and love, but also from all meaning and purpose. No longer flourishing, we were now perishing because we left the kingdom of God and entered into the kingdom of darkness. Enslaved to our sin and captive to the serpent. And you know, God would have been perfectly justified to just leave things as they were. Man, we led an insurrection against the high king of heaven. We made ourselves enemies of the state. Heads should have rolled. Oh, but aren't you thankful that God isn't just great, He's kind. And in his mercy, he didn't abandon his image bearers, tarnished as that image may be. No, he pursued these kingdom refugees to rescue them from the domain of darkness and restore his image in them. Indeed, he pursued Abraham and made him a promise. He said, I will make you into a great what? Nation! Nation! And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see what God is promising here? He is reestablishing his kingdom on earth. It's a kingdom that will begin with Abraham and his family, but it will go out from there. It begins with the nation of Israel, but out of Israel, it will go to every tongue, tribe, and nation. All families of the earth shall be blessed. Heaven will again come to earth. And how did this kingdom begin? What does it say? It says Abraham believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. He believed. He trusted God. He yielded to the rule and the reign of God. And so we see that first little bit of leaven, that first mustard seed of kingdom resurgence. But even as God reestablishes his kingdom with Abraham, We see this cosmic duel between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God continue. We see it in the Exodus with the showdown between Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt and the true and rightful God and ruler Yahweh. In delivering the Israelites from Egypt, God wasn't just making good on his promise to Abraham. No, throughout Exodus, we see him saying to Moses that he will deliver his people for this purpose. What is it? That the Egyptians, indeed that all nations shall know, that I am the Lord when I I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. We see this as the people of Israel enter into Canaan, and they meet the prostitute Rahab, who has indeed heard what God has done in rescuing his people from Egypt, and who herself now believes, and enters into the kingdom, and helps the Israelites secure the promised land. We see God's faithfulness in establishing the kingdom of Israel, delivering his people from various enemies, raising up a king after his own heart in David, to whom God promised, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, he says to David, shall be established forever. Nevertheless, Moses had warned people before they entered the promised land. Be careful. Be careful as you head into this prosperous land, just like Adam and Eve before you in the garden. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord. Indeed, he warned them in Deuteronomy 8. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Yet Israel and its kings constantly turned to false gods, aligned with godless rulers both within Israel and without. And though the prophets cried out and warned them to repent, the people continued to harden their heart against God and dabble in this kingdom of darkness. And so God sent the nations in to now judge Israel them allowing the kingdoms of israel and judah to be conquered by the assyrians and the babylonians and the persians and the greeks and the romans the kingdom again fractured and dispersed its people again in exile and yet even here god had not forgotten his promise to abraham and david Indeed, he promised them through his prophet Ezekiel that he would bring back the pe- from the peoples and gather them from their enemies' lands. For what purpose? Listen, to vindicate my holiness in the sight of Of the nations. Then he says, They shall know that I am the Lord their God. Because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land, I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore. And so we see here God is faithful to preserve for himself a righteous remnant among the people of Israel, who by faith longed to see the kingdom restored, longed to see the return of a righteous king, longed for the promised Messiah who would set all Things right. So church, do you see then the glory of the opening verse of the Gospel of Matthew when it says this? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who is what? The son of David. The son of Abraham. Church, the Messiah has come. The king is here. The kingdom is returning. The kingdom is being restored. And yet, It is not what the people were expecting. Man, they thought this Messiah would come to take up arms and rally the people to fight against foreign empires and reclaim David's throne in this sense. They wanted a political Messiah, and you can understand why. They remembered the glory of the physical kingdom of Israel, but they misunderstood what the point of the physical kingdom of Israel was. It wasn't for the glory of having a geopolitical power. No, like the priests and the temple and the sacrifices, the physical kingdom of Israel was not an end in itself. It was meant to point to something beyond itself, to something greater. In Isaiah 49.6, God says, Israel was to be a light to the nations. For what purpose? Listen, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Remember also God's promise to Abraham. Why was he making him into a great nation? To bless all nations. Listen, the glory of Israel was not in the establishment of an earthly power. It was what that earthly power was pointing to because it was through this nation of Israel that one would come to build not a temporal earthly kingdom, but an eternal heavenly one. One that would at long last destroy the kingdom of darkness that rules and reigns over every earthly power and bring everything back under the rightful rule and reign of God. This One is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the kingdom of Israel. He is what the kingdom of Israel has been pointing to. And as we see with the Beatitudes, he's flipping all expectations on their head. His kingdom will not come through the high and mighty, but through the poor in spirit, the meek and the lowly. It does not advance through military triumph, but through mourning and perseverance and persecution and peacemaking. It will not arrive through selfish ambition, but through hearts that hunger, pure hearts that hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's why Jesus told Peter to put away his sword. He says, my kingdom won't come this way. We don't fight to advance the kingdom. In fact, we lay our weapons down. Indeed, you'll remember Jesus told us a few verses back to turn the other cheek, to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. Why? Because like Jagerstadter, we recognize at the end of the day, they're not really our enemies. Our true enemy is Satan, who has blinded their eyes to the truth of the gospel. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6.12, he says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen, church, our war is not against men and women. Our war is against the kingdom of darkness that is holding men and women in bondage. So we do not seek to conquer nations and lands for King Jesus. No, he made clear where he stood when he stood before Pilate that his kingdom was not of this world. That's why concepts like Christian nationalism are oxymoronic and contradictory on their face, completely foreign to the teaching of Scripture. There is no such thing as a Christian country in a geopolitical sense, not on this side of heaven. The only Christian country is that nation made up of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The people of the kingdom of God. So beware anyone who tries to co-opt your faith for political ends. That's not the way of the kingdom. Don't make the same mistake that the people of Jesus' day made. They wanted a political Messiah. And when Jesus refused to play along, they crucified him. Indeed, when Pilate asked them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests blasphemously declared, We have no king but Caesar. Caesar. They rejected the kingship of God for an earthly king. Listen, the kingdom does not advance through worldly politics. It advances as we confront the powers of darkness with the light of Jesus. As we herald the good news of the gospel, that he can lead you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Back to the shalom of Eden. This is the kingdom we pray for. This is the kingdom Jesus came for. So he tells us to pray, Your kingdom come. But he also teaches us to pray this, Your will be done. Now, again, that seems like a weird request. What do we mean praying, Your will be done? I mean, if anything but God's will could be done, then he wouldn't be God, because that would mean something greater than him was acting. But again, Scripture teaches that nothing happens unless God decrees it or he allows it. Look at Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, Matthew ten twenty-nine: are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. 2 Chronicles 26, you rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. We even see in Job, even Satan cannot thwart the will of God. He can't even tempt us without God's permission. So in what meaningful sense can we pray for God's will to be done when it seems that nothing but God's will can be done? Well, listen, there is an important difference between what theologians call God's sovereign will, that is the fact that nothing can happen unless he decrees or allows it, and his revealed will, that is the things he has told us to do, the ways in which he has shown us that we live a life. Life that is pleasing to Him. Just like in the garden, when God told Adam and Eve they could eat from any tree, but the one tree, the knowledge of the tree, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what was God's revealed will to them? That they would enjoy every other tree, but refrain from eating from the one, or else they would surely die. That is also the purpose of the revealed law of Moses. Again, to demonstrate what is pleasing to God, what leads to our flourishing. So when Jesus calls us to pray for God's will to be done. This is what he is talking about. He is telling us to earnestly desire to do what pleases God, to yield to God's revealed will. In other words, to submit to the rule and the reign of God. So church, do you see, to pray God's will be done is to repeat the prayer for God's kingdom to come. Indeed, the will of God in this sense is not all that mysterious. So many of us wrestle with how we can know God's will for our life. And by that, we mean, where does he want me to go to college or work? What career path should I take? Where should I live? Whom should I marry? And listen, those are all great questions to ask. But as Henry Blackaby has noted, the fundamental question for every person is not, what is God's will for my life? But rather, what is God's will? In other words, how do I live a life that is pleasing to him? And listen, if that's your question this morning, you don't have to search very hard for an answer because God has told us what is pleasing to him. Indeed, in this sense, God tells us exactly what his will is. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, it says, For this is the will of God. Hello, Right? If you want to know the answer to this question, he's about to tell you. What does he say is the will of God? Listen, he says, your sanctification. Your what now? Sanctification. That's just a fancy word meaning to be made holy. So what is God's will for your life? Well, it says 1 Peter 1.15 tells us, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. That is God's will. Church, we know God's will. The question is not what is God's will, the question is will we do it? Will we do God's will? And you know what, left to ourselves, the answer to that question for every human being is a resounding no. Because on this side of Eden, none of us in our own power even wants to do the will of God. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. John 14, 17 says, The world cannot receive the spirit of truth because it neither sees him or knows him. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 2 Corinthians 4.3, the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, lowercase g, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of capital G God. Jesus himself says in Matthew seven twenty one, not even everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but what? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So wait a second. If in my own power, I would never desire to do God's will, much less actually do it, how can I ever hope to enter the kingdom of heaven? Because we already know Jesus isn't relaxing any standards. He told us we need a greater righteousness, one that exceeded the external obedience of the Pharisees if we want to enter. Indeed, more than external obedience, we need internal obedience. It's not enough to do it. You have to want it. So what hope is there for anyone to see the kingdom come? Listen, there is only one way. Jesus already told us what the first step was with the very first beatitude, didn't he? Do you remember what that was? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, the doorway into the kingdom is first a recognition that you have nothing to offer. You are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to offer. You recognize the depth of your sin. You know in your own power you could never make it to God. So listen, if you're feeling that this morning, man, have I got good news for you because that is the first step step in the journey but listen even to have that revelation you need something else to understand this you need something else because in your own power you wouldn't even reach this conclusion because no one in their own power even gets to this point of recognition so how do you get there jesus says you must be born again John 3.3 3 says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Oh, but thanks be to God that Jesus tells us that by the Holy Spirit, we can indeed be born again. See, more than just giving us the law to show us his will, a law which is powerless to save, it can only show us what is wrong with us, but has, nothing, has no power in it to change us, to do anything about us. God promises he's going to deal with the greater issue, our heart, our desires. Listen to what he says. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you what? A new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you. For what person? Listen, purpose? Listen, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. How then, how then will we do the will of God? How will we obey him? Listen, it is only by the Holy Spirit who gives us a new heart with new desires and a will to do the will of God, to have a heart aligned with the heart of God. Indeed, this is why Jesus came. He did what we failed to do. He fully obeyed the will of God. He yielded to the will of God, even to the point of death, crying out what? Not my will, but yours be done. And having obeyed on our behalf, he was able to then die on our behalf, taking the punishment we deserved death on the cross. And in doing so, he not only took on all our sin and gave us all his righteousness, no, by his resurrection, listen to what else was happening in that moment. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood, talking about us as human beings, flesh and blood. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself took, partook of the same things, that through his death, listen, what? He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Colossians one thirteen says he has delivered us from what? From the domain of darkness and transferred us to what? To the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom it says, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Listen, Jesus didn't come the first time to be installed as an earthly king. He came to dethrone the ruler of this world, Satan, and to set his captives free. Friend, listen, no matter how deep the darkness of your life is, you can be set free today. Repent Believe. It is not by anything you've done, but by what he has done. He will call you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So do you see then the essence of what this prayer is getting at? It is praying for our hearts to be aligned with the heart of God. It is praying that his kingdom will come among us. It is praying that his will will be done among us. That the culture of heaven will be evident among us. That we would be meek and pure in heart and peacemakers. That we would hunger and thirst for righteousness. So we see here it starts with us, church, as the people of God. We pray that these things are true among us, But as we saw last week, it can't stay here. Inherent to this call is not only a call to personal holiness, it is also a missional call. It is saying, God, I long to see your kingdom spread throughout the earth. I long to see all people recognize you as king. I long to see all people do your will, just as the angels never cease day and night to worship and exalt you. Oh God, let the earth receive her king and this is exactly what jesus called us to after his resurrection jesus gave us parting instructions better known as the great commission listen to what he says here he says all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me what does that mean if all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him what does that mean it means jesus is king and in light of that, in light of that, what does he tell us to do? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What's he saying? Make the kingdom come. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, listen, to observe all that I have commanded you. What's he saying there? He's saying, teach them to do my will. He's saying, go, make disciples, Go, make the kingdom come. Go, teach people to do my will. Indeed, Jesus promises us in Matthew 24, 14, he says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In other words, then the kingdom will arrive in full force. Because church, the kingdom is still advancing. It came long ago, first came long ago, but it hasn't yet fully come. But the day is coming. Just as sure as Jesus came the first time, fulfilling the ancient promises to Abraham and David, so will he return again in the fullness of time to gather his people, those elect Exiles of every nation, as First Peter calls them, but not until his church has gone fully global. Not until every people group is represented in his kingdom. So church, if we really want to see the kingdom come, y'all, we better get to work. If we truly want his will to be done, we had better get on the move, going across the street, going across those oceans, because we want to tell the good news of the kingdom, to advance his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So we do not grow weary, church. We're not going to grow faint. Some days it's going to feel like a sprint, some days it might feel like a crawl, but we plod on with our little mustard seed of faith, with our little bit of leaven entrusted to us. Oh, the powers of darkness may seem great, but church we know that Jesus is greater and the true greatness of the kingdom may seem hidden for now but we might find ourselves asking will anything I do change the course of this war and you know what the answer is no because the truth of the matter is the course has already been changed The powers of darkness have already been defeated. When Jesus died on the cross in our place, he crushed the head of our ancient foe, Satan. So listen, any evil, any darkness we see today are not shouts of victory, but final gasps of defeated desperation. So we will fear no evil because God is with us. And if he is with us, church, who can stand against us? so we press on church let's press on because we know what's at stake having been delivered ourselves from the realms of darkness we seek to deliver others Knowing that those who do not surrender to the will of God, who do not submit to the sovereign king, will spend eternity separated from him. Cut off from the source of goodness, truth, and beauty, and love, and life. Dying, perishing, eternally. Oh, but we want everyone to know that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how, Paul asks in Romans 10, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? That's why Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So we cry out with Jesus and John the Baptist before him, repent, For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Indeed, he is coming soon. And today, you have the choice to bend the knee. But there is coming a day when there will be no other option. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus is King. And we will declare with the angels, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Heaven at last has come to earth. Until then, church, we labor and we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Will you pray that with me now? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One more time like you mean it, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray with me. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information about our church, visit welfordchurch.org. Blessings.